Uh, hello, welcome to Wikistrack's current events podcast in which we discuss ongoing developments and, and recent events in the Middle East. We're very lucky to be here today to discuss a podcast, The Political Islam in, in Jordan. This is Adam Hoffman for Wikistrack, and I'm also joined by Dr. Rebecca Molloy, our head of the director of the Middle East community. And we're especially happy to be here today with Dr. Uh, Yoas Wachmakers, who is in Arabic at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at uh, Utrecht University and in, in the Netherlands, and he is a specialist on Salafism and political, especially in Jordan. And he just had a new book out on the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, which I think is a fascinating topic, yet quite widely misunderstood and understudied. So this will be really the topic of our podcast here today. So Dr. Wachmager, so just to start with the first question, so just recently in July, the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood was dissolved by Jordan's court of cessation on July 18, ending the group's legal status in the country. So based on your research on the history of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, which is the topic of your latest book, how would you characterize the relations between the Jordanian state and the Muslim Brotherhood since its founding in 1946? Yes, well, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Uh, very nice of you to do so. I'm happy to be here. As for your question, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded in 1945 and given a license in 1946. And it basically went through three different phases in its history from 1946 until now. The first phase was from 1946 to about the early 1990s, which was a, a phase of cooperation with the regime. The second phase was from the early 1990s to the late 1990s, so about a decade, which was one of contestation. And the last phase is the one we're still in, and which you could argue has sort of culminated into the decision by the Jordanian Court of Cassation on the 18th of July to outlaw and dissolve the Muslim Brotherhood, which is one of confrontation. Now, the first period was really one in which the regime and the Muslim Brotherhood cooperated a lot, expressed the same sort of broad-based lay type of uh, Muslim sentiments that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt also expressed through the works of Hassan al-Banna, the activities that he displayed throughout the country. And the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan at the time was mostly very pro-Palestinian and aimed at educating people, doing social activities, etc. So this was all rather uncontroversial in Jordan at the time. The first king of Jordan, King Abdullah I, who reigned until 1951 when he was assassinated in Jerusalem, gave a lot of leeway to the Muslim Brotherhood because he also felt that he was someone who originally came from Mecca. He did not have a, a clear authority in the country. He's still called Transjordan at the time, and he needed all the authority and all the status and all the sources of authenticity that he could possibly get. And one of the sources of authenticity that he wanted to use was Islam. So he probably believed that by supporting an explicitly Muslim and Islamic group such as the Muslim Brotherhood, he could abet and support his own sources of authenticity with regard to the religion. And as such, he supported the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood got things from the regime and the Muslim Brotherhood in turn also supported the regime when it needed it most. For example, when it murdered many Palestinians during uh, Black September in 1970, when it was confronted with Nasserism in the 1950s, when it was confronted with certain international plans to counter communism, for example, in the context of the Cold War. So whenever the regime needed support, the Muslim Brotherhood more or less gave it to them. And in return, the Muslim Brotherhood was also supported by the regime. 
Now this changed into the second phase, which was the one of contestation, when the Muslim Brotherhood started politicizing more and more and started expressing its opinion, not just on the Palestinian question and on social issues, but also on political issues and felt that it should also be allowed and, and be able to criticize the regime. And this was expressed first and foremost in 1989, when the first parliamentary elections were held in the country. Since 1967, since the June War of 1967, in which Jordan obviously lost the West Bank to Israel. And after that war, elections were suspended and were reinstated in 1989. And in those elections, the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood did quite well. They won 22 seats out of 80 seats and also more than a dozen independent Islamists. Also a dozen independent Islamists also won seats in that parliament. So they had 34 seats in all in a parliament of 80 seats. So that's almost half. So they did quite, quite well. And as such, the regime, which had allowed everyone to participate, was sort of scared of the Muslim Brotherhood and thought, well, we're not going to do this again. So the next elections in 1993, the Muslim Brotherhood was not only compelled to participate in the elections with an actual political party, the Islamic Action Front, which was founded in 1992, but it also had to conform to certain rules. And these rules included gerrymandering electoral districts. These included giving more votes to rural voters rather than the, the urban ones on which the Muslim Brotherhood mostly relied. And there were several such measures taken by the Jordanian regime, which meant that the Muslim Brotherhood did not really have advantages over other people, but it, it really lost out even though uh, the number of people who voted for the Muslim Brotherhood stayed the same or actually grew. So the Muslim Brotherhood was quite frustrated by this. The peace agreement between Jordan and Israel in 1994 was another eyesore to the Muslim Brotherhood. It was something that they really didn't like and despite their parliamentary presence were not able to stop it. So there was increasing tension between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Jordanian regime. This turned into the third phase of their relationship, which was one of confrontation, particularly under the latest king, King Abdullah II, who grew up uh, to a large extent in Great Britain and in the United States, and as such was very unfamiliar with the sort of interest groups in Jordan, including tribal groups, and also including the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood. And he did not have the sort of, well, what should I call it, the ability to walk the tightrope of Jordanian politics, perhaps as much as his father. And as such, he was quite skeptical of the Muslim Brotherhood. He started seeing the Muslim Brotherhood less as a political force, but probably more also as a security force. And as such, he shunned the Muslim Brotherhood. He didn't like him as much. And the Muslim Brotherhood sort of reciprocated this by boycotting elections several times. They had done this before in 1997, but they did so again in 2010 and in 2013, after it really became clear that they couldn't work with this regime. There was no future for reform and the sort of reform that the Muslim Brotherhood advocated. And as such, the relationship has deteriorated ever since King Abdullah II became king in 1999 and eventually this resulted in uh, a development that was actually present all over the region where the Muslim Brotherhood was being outlawed and dissolved in countries such as Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and the internal divisions and this is an important part of my book within the Muslim Brotherhood made the Muslim Brotherhood particularly vulnerable to this kind of thing, to regime pressure, and eventually resulted in the dissolvement of the Muslim Brotherhood by the Court of Cassation on July 18th that you started your question with. So the Muslim Brotherhood has gone from cooperation to contestation to confrontation to a situation in which it, it actually officially doesn't even exist anymore. So I know much of your previous research has focused on Salafi jihadism and Salafi jihadi ideologues such as the Maktisi, which wrote a fascinating biography of back in 2012, if I remember correctly. So how do you see the impact of Salafi jihadism as an ideological current and Islamic State as a group on the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood? 
Well, I think jihadi Salafism really has not had a great impact on the Muslim Brotherhood in general. I think that the failure of the Muslim Brotherhood to do anything about certain developments within Jordan, and most particularly the peace agreement with Israel in 1994, must have disappointed quite a few people. The early 1990s was a very troublesome period, very turbulent period in the history of Jordan, with the Palestinian Intifada going on, of course, which because of the fact that many Jordanians are of Palestinian descent, so that obviously reverberates in Jordan more than in other countries, I suppose. There was the Gulf War in which Jordan and, and many people in the Middle East, not just Jordanians, but many people saw America coming in and waging a war against Iraq and, and Jordanians not having any ability to do anything about it, despite the fact that they were strongly sympathetic towards the regime of Saddam Hussein, with which their own King Hussein was on very good terms at the time. There was the series of reforms, economic reforms that had taken place in the early 1990s, which really had a strong impact on Jordanian society. There were the democratic reforms that were taking place in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And all of this was a very turbulent period. And the fact that many Jordanians were not profiting from that, neither economically nor politically, and that the regime even concluded a peace agreement with arch enemy Israel must have been very disillusioning to many people. So I think that quite a few people were not just disillusioned, but may have even sought solutions to their problems or their perceived problems in groups and in ideologies that were quite a bit more radical than the Muslim Brotherhood was. And some of those have ended up with jihadi Salafi groups. So that's one source of impact between jihadi Salafis on the one hand, the Muslim Brotherhood on the other. But that was not so much impact on the Muslim Brotherhood, but it was really, the Muslim Brotherhood was, was more or less the victim of this. Another thing that was quite important was that the quietest Salafi trend within Jordan, so the ones who do not engage in political activism, who do not use violence against the state, but who are very uh, loyal, in fact, towards the state, and certainly have become so, particularly in the last 20 years, those people gain members from the Muslim Brotherhood because the Muslim Brotherhood was seen by them as not pure enough. One person, for example, in Jordan, Mashhur ibn Hassan, who was one of the most famous quietest Salafi scholars in Jordan, he used to be a Muslim brother, and he used to be with that organization, but he, he left them behind because he felt it was not pure enough, he was not uh, correct enough, it was not principled enough, perhaps. And as such, there were quite a few people who left the Muslim Brotherhood and joined the Salafis. In fact, it was even the case that some people in the Muslim Brotherhood are said to have told their members, don't go and listen to the Salafi sheikhs anymore, particularly Muhammad Nasr al al-Albani, who was the leader of the Salafi movement in the 1980s and 1990s in Jordan. Uh, don't listen to these sheikhs anymore because we will lose our members to them if you do. So I think those are two developments where there is crossover from the Muslim Brotherhood on the one hand to various types of Salafis on the other. But apart from that, I don't really see a lot of influence because the two movements have really grown apart, whereas decades and decades ago, there was still quite a bit of overlap, particularly in countries such as Syria. That is really no longer the case and certainly not in Jordan. Well, that's fascinating because in, in many countries, in some countries in the region, such as Egypt, primarily also the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia, then since 2012, 2013, there was a very clear attempt to link the Muslim Brotherhood and the, the message of the Brotherhood to the jihadis and to a group such as Daesh, um, Islamic State. So do you see any impact on that, this kind of regional term attempt to blackface the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan? Do you see any impact on the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood? 
Oh, yes, that certainly happens. Yes, no, certainly does. There are definitely journalists and others in Jordan who try to paint with a very broad brush and say, you know, look, all of these are Islamists. All of these take their Islam much further than we would like them to. They are basically one and the same group. The Muslim Brotherhood puts on a friendly face, but it's really sort of Al-Qaeda, Islamic State type of group, but without the explicit use of violence. I've been told many times, and I've also read in books written by people, Jordanians, Salafis or not, who said the Muslim Brotherhood is a sort of destructive force in our society. It wants to grab power, support revolutions. So there have been many attempts to link the Muslim Brotherhood with the Islamic State and with other like-minded groups. And I would argue that the Muslim Brotherhood has sometimes sort of given people reason to believe that. Not always consciously, perhaps, but for example, when Abu Musab al-Zarawi, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq at the time, was assassinated by the United States in 2006, he was from Azarqa, a city in the east of Jordan, and some members of parliament on behalf of the Islamic Action Front, the party affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, went there to give their condolences to the family of Azarqa. Now, they didn't do this because they supported him or supported his ideology. In fact, there were several other people, several other members of parliament who were also from that area, who also did that, who were not members of the Islamic Action Front. But the two members who did this, or the three members, I think, who did this, who were members of the Islamic Action Front, got in trouble and had to pay fines and even had to go to prison for doing that. And there was this outpouring of how can you possibly go to the family of this man, this man who only a year before was responsible for blowing up several hotels in Amman, killing dozens of people. How can you possibly go there and try to console the family and, and doing things like that? And they were probably doing their bit as local politicians. And as I said, you know, there were other politicians as well, non-Islamist politicians who did the same thing, who were not punished for it. But that was an indication that the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamic State or or Al-Qaeda, of course, at the time, because these states didn't exist at the time, that they were really two sides of the same coin. And other indications can be given as well. For example, Esersiba, the Jordanian fighter pilot who was burned alive by the Islamic State several years later, he'd been missing for some time. And Hamza Mansour, the leader of the Islamic Action Front in the early 2010s, was asked, do you condemn the terrorism of the Islamic State? This is how the question was phrased. And without giving a, a straight yes or no answer, he said, we condemn all terrorism. And they said, yeah, but do you condemn the terrorism of the Islamic State? And he said, no, 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 we condemn all terrorism, probably because he didn't want to single that out. And then the day after, or two days after or something like that, the video of Mu'ad al-Qasasiba being burned alive by the Islamic State was shown on, perhaps not on television, but it was certainly available on the internet and became known. And there was an outpour of grief and of solidarity with the family. And everybody said, you know, he's a martyr, our hero. It was in the newspapers every day. And suddenly, here was Hamza Mansour refusing to explicitly condemn the terrorism of the Islamic State. And a few days later, this fight, Jordanian fighter pilot who was, you know, could be anybody's brother or son, is being burned alive by this very organization whose terrorism he refuses to condemn explicitly. So then he immediately obviously said, you know, oh, no, I do, I do condemn this. But it, this was not a very clever move, perhaps. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic State are the same thing. They are not. They are very different. But there have been many attempts by the group's opponents, or perhaps I should say enemies, to paint them as if they were. Understood. I was just about to move the conversation to, to Rebecca, just saying that, you know, this pragmatic, apologetic, or more ambiguous ideological message 
is fascinating. And I just wanted to move um, the, the conversation to Rebecca to have some more questions to that, please. So thank you. I, well, I thought that your answer just brilliantly moved the conversation to the next question, which I think anybody listening would be curious about, which was why or how have the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, as well as their political arm, the IAF, moderated their conception of state political participation, freedoms, my personal interest is particularly regarding women's status in the last two decades. And the last two decades is what you have presented, at least in the answer for the first question, as the, the age of confrontation. So I wanted you to contextualize it against what you just talked about, kind of highlighting how the JMB can be analyzed to have moderated their positions. Right. This is one of the main parts of my book, how they are moderated, particularly with regard to the state and political participation. And before I answer your question directly, it's perhaps important to know that in Jordan, there are really very few, if any, important scholars of Islamism. So people like Yusuf al-Qaradawi in, in Qatar and Rashid al-Ghanoushi in Tunisia, and obviously people like Sayyid Qutb and Hassan al-Banna and Abdul Qadir Auda, but also later scholars such as uh, Mohammed al-Ghazali in Egypt, these were all lacking in Jordan. There were some scholars, of course, and people writing books, and many people wrote newspaper articles, but really scholars with an international profile were really lacking in Jordan. And as a result of that, and this is the reason why I bring it up, Jordan was very reliant on international Islamist scholars, such as the ones I just mentioned, and including others as well, such as Hassan al-Turabi, for example, from Sudan, to come up with new ideas. And these international Islamist scholars have come up with ideas of moderating views on the state. And now with regard to the state, it, it really started out as views on the caliphate. So people really at first, if, if you read, for example, uh, the book Du'at Laqudat, authored by Hassan al-Hudaybi, who was the, uh, the second general guide of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, he really, I mean, it's, it's very, very clear that he really has the caliphate in the back of his mind. So he's really describing an Islamic state, but he's he's describing it as a sort of a state with all the trappings of the caliphate. He, he doesn't seem to be able or, or willing, perhaps, to let go of the caliphate, despite the fact that the caliphate had not been in existence anymore for about 40 or 50 years. So whereas he was still very much preoccupied with the caliphate, later Muslim scholars, including the ones I mentioned, really let go of the caliphate and seem to realize that this is really, you know, this ship has sailed, it's not, it's not going to come back. So they focus on the Islamic State and confronted with all kinds of challenges to the Islamic State. So what does that mean, for example, for non-Muslims? And, and, and how can we achieve an Islamic State when there's clearly no realistic prospect of, of our doing that? How can we do that without overthrowing the regime? How can we do that through elections? How can we make sure that we reach our goals? All of these factors played a role in moderating the groups and the international Islamist scholars' views on the Islamic State because they realized that they can never achieve what they really wanted. And they also believed in order for people to continue to support you, you have to be able to reach some sort of goal. You have to be able to achieve something. So all of these factors came in and they started reinterpreting ideas on the Islamic State. So they started introducing the idea of what well, an Islamic state is never really what a sort of a Christian state was in medieval Europe. So there, is, there was never the idea of a sort of a clerical state led by the Roman Catholic Church, a, a theocracy. That was not what they wanted. They said, and we don't want a military state either. 
So what they came up with was the idea of a, a civil state, a dawla al-madaniya, a civil state, with an Islamic authority, bi marja'iya islamiyya. And what does this Islamic authority mean? It means that we basically have a civil state, but that it is informed by Islam. And that went from the Sharia should be the only source of legislation to things like it should be the most important source of legislation to it should be a source of legislation. And some scholars even went so far as to say, particularly Rashid al-Ghanoushi, for example, to say, well, God has basically entrusted Muslims, the Ummah as a whole, to act as the, as the caliph and to interpret the Sharia as they see fit. And as long as they stick within certain boundaries, then whatever they do as Muslims must be right and must be the Sharia. So the, the Ummah, the Muslim community as a whole, acts as the caliph through which God uh, applies the Sharia, through which God establishes his Islamic State. So it was ideas such as that one that constitutionalized the Sharia, and by that I mean that it changed the Sharia from a set of detailed rules into a set of more or less very broad guidelines within which people could come up with their own rules that provided the space for the development of a, a wholly new idea of an Islamic state, namely one that did not simply apply uh, a set of rules, but one that basically said, okay, we already live in an Islamic state, we just need to reform it a bit more. And that is what some people within the Muslim Brotherhood also adopted, the idea of a civil state within Islamic authority. So that's how they moderated with regard to the state. With regard to political participation, they changed certain concepts and saying, look, at first they said, we do not want democracy, we want shura, mutual consultation, because that is an Islamic concept, it's a Quranic concept, and it's vastly preferable to democracy because democracy means, you know, it's like Western freedoms and Western rights, and we don't want that. We want something authentically Islamic. But that gradually changed into a situation in which they said, well, democracy in shura is, is really the same because people used to say, well, Shura is like an Islamic form of democracy, so the people can choose what they want, but they have to stick to the rules of the Sharia. But if you start reinterpreting the Sharia as being a broad set of guidelines rather than a sort of big book of rules, then obviously that opens the door to saying, if we allow the people to have a say, and if we allow the people to have a say on a lot more issues than, than we thought possible at first, then we can also say the democracy in Shura is it's really more or less the same. So whenever we say shura, we mean democracy, and whenever we say democracy, we mean shura. And the result being that if you read the most recent election manifestos that the, the Islamic Action Front and the Muslim Brotherhood have published over the years, over the last few decades, uh, they've really come up with solutions that, that really phrase things in terms of freedom and democracy. So that is another area where they have moderated their views. Now, with regard to the third thing, and particularly what you said you were mostly uh, interested in, which was the freedom and rights, and particularly with, regarding, with regard to women, this is an area where they have not moderated their views so much. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, is basically threefold. Firstly, with regard to the state and political participation, the Muslim Brotherhood was very divided. There were always people who represented the most conservative point of view, and there were people who represented the most liberal point of view. And because of that uh, very broad spectrum of views, people never had to leave the Muslim Brotherhood to stay within the movement and, and shift to a different position within the movement. That was always possible because it was a very broad and very pluriform and very heterogeneous movement. That was not the case with regard to women, freedom of speech and the rights of non-Muslims. 
the rights of non-Muslims, perhaps slightly so, but with regard to the other two subjects, civil liberties and women's rights, that was less the case. So the lack of unity on these issues was one reason why it was difficult for Muslim brothers to shift from one position to the other, because they were basically united in their positions. Another reason was that Jordan is a very conservative society, and because precisely because the Muslim Brotherhood wants to come across as democratic, it not only builds on the, the sentiments that live in Jordanian society, but it also wants to reflect those sentiments. And as such, the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood can say, look, you know, as a democratic group, we can't say that women should be allowed to, to go out and have a job without their husband's permission. We can't say that because that is unacceptable in Jordanian society. For them to go beyond that point of view and to go more in the direction of what in the West would be considered uh, women's rights, whatever broad meaning that is given to that term in the West, that would be unacceptable to Jordanian society. So from a democratic point of view, they said, look, we need to reflect society. This is really a non-starter. We're not going to do this. And they're probably right, by the way, uh, about that, because polls have shown that Jordanians are indeed quite conservative with regards to these issues. And a third reason is that the texts in the Quran and in the Sunnah on issues with respect to particularly women, I would say, but also the, the other issues in the, in the sort of societal rights and freedoms part uh, of this question are quite a bit more fixed, quite a bit more rigid in the sense of they are less open to multiple interpretations. Now, clearly they are still open to multiple interpretations. The Quran being the Quran, it's obviously for imaginative Muslims, it's obviously always quite possible to come up with a different interpretation as it is with other religions. But this is less the case than with regards to politics, where the texts are really quite vague. And as such, it is probably more difficult from a textual perspective, from a Quranic perspective, to come up with more reformist and more moderate points of view. So whereas the pluriformity and the heterogeneity of the Muslim Brotherhood facilitated reform with regard to the state and political participation, its ideological unity or its relative ideological unity hampered in that very reform in other areas. Brilliant. If I could restate it and I guess ask it in a different way, from what I read in your book, the Sharia-centered Muslim Brotherhood in that pluriformity gamut, would I be able to characterize them as less flexible as those within the Ummah-centered Muslim Brotherhood? And if that's the case, we're talking about a gamut within or the an umbrella the, the muslim brotherhood more as an umbrella and would that mean that even though they are diverse in their opinions or, or their ideologies on many different issues they have as you said they're united on particularly women's rights right yes that's true i mean the sharia centered ones i call them sharia centered because they really uh, privilege the sharia and the rules of the sharia over the ummah whereas the ummah centered ones are precisely opposite they look at the sharia through the prism of the ummah of the, of the muslim community and the sharia centered ones are indeed less flexible than the ummah centered ones as you say but with regard to certain issues, for example, and most particularly women's rights, they are quite united. I'm not the first one to conclude this, by the way. Someone like Kakari Rozevsky Wickham, for example, has written a, an excellent book on the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and has made comparisons with, with other countries in the region. And she also draws the same conclusions that, for example, with regard to the idea of tribes being allowed to murder women who have been raped and rather than getting them to marry the person who raped them. And this is a very problematic issue for the Muslim Brotherhood, not because they condone rape, because they don't, and mm -hmm. not because they think you know, this is, is a fine issue or that, that none of this is bad, but because they think that if you allow women who have been raped not to marry their rapists, 
then that is in a way condoning extramarital sex and mm. that is something that they will really not accept and as such they have really resisted for a long time giving into this demand and saying look we, we should stop this practice from happening because uh, a man raping a woman presumably they're not married but that is in a sense extramarital sex and that's wrong and because they oppose that so much they resisted this so this was one thing that women's rights activists in jordan were really opposed to they said you know this is really bad but this is something that generally speaking the muslim brotherhood is quite united in in women's rights issues and as a result and then that it seems almost like their philosophy of reading scripture and taking it seriously and reading it within its context and and having sharia scholars who interpret these texts for them sort of traps them into a limited number of different interpretations and traps them into a certain box that that they cannot escape from and whereas with the other subjects there is a lot of leeway that the texts have wildly differing uh, interpretations they can escape from that or at least the, the box is a lot wider perhaps i should put it that way Mm -hmm. uh, but with regards to women's rights, that is simply not the case. And I think that it is certainly not the only reason, as I just mentioned, but it's certainly a reason why they've not been able to come up with more moderate solutions. And it's interesting to see that the Muslim Brotherhood has definitely become more democratic over the years, not just in Jordan, but also in other contexts. But they have not become a lot more liberal. I mean, capital L liberal. I'm not, not talking about classical liberalism here, because that's a completely different issue. But they've not become more capital L liberal in the sense that we use the term in Great Britain and, and the United States. So that's really an area where you could argue that they still have a lot of room for improvement. I'm not saying that. I mean, that would suggest that I think that they should um, change and it's not it's not my job to, to say in what direction they should reform. But this is clearly an area where they could still moderate further if they should choose to do so. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, we had one more question. I feel like you've already answered it, so maybe we can narrow it a bit. Uh, the last question was, how does the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood case specifically show the pluriformity in Islam? And like I said, you've basically illustrated it, but maybe you can explain a little bit more on the idea of the Ummah-centric, the Sharia-centric group. What about the group that you referred to as oscillate, that they oscillate? How would that look on an issue of your choice, whether it's freedom, uh, freedoms, rights of minorities, or political participation? What does it look like? What would their opinion look like? What would their ideology look like, those who oscillate? Right, well, take for example, non-Muslims. In, in Islamic society. The Sharia-centered people would say, look, you know, the Prophet has said, Man the, the, mm -hmm. he whoever changes his religion, kill him. So that's what we need to do. So if anyone converts from Islam to Christianity or to Judaism or, or becomes an atheist or, or something like that, then this person should be killed. Full stop, that's it. That's the rule. The people on the Ummah-centered side would say, look, that's not true. There are lots of caveats here and we should basically let the interests of the Ummah decide. And if people are converting to Christianity or Judaism or becoming atheists, then there must be something wrong. We should perhaps pour more money into education or something like that. But that is not really what they're saying. The, the critics of the Sharia-centered point of view are really not Ummah-centered, but are really the balanced ones. So the people who oscillate between the two extreme positions, as it were, and I don't mean extreme in a negative way, just the two sides, in the sense that they say, look, we need to take the Sharia into account. We need to argue on the basis of these texts. So they come up with the idea of saying, look, there is also a saying of the Prophet Muhammad in which he says, anyone who leaves the religion and leaves my community, it's referred to as a tariq al-jama'ah, so a person who leaves the community 
those people should be killed. So they say there is a social component, a sort of communitarian component to leaving the religion. It's not just an inward change of heart that you say, okay, I'm not going to go to mosque anymore on Friday, but I'm going to go to church on Sunday. That's not it. Or I'm not going to pray to Mecca anymore, but to Jerusalem. It's not just that type of inward change of heart, but it's also a change of community. And that is how it should be interpreted. But they still take the texts as their starting point. And these texts are interpreted in such a way that they say, for example, Yusuf al-Qaradawi is, is one of the people who said this. He said, look, if you have a, a religious change of heart and you convert to a different religion, but you just do it quietly, nobody's going to persecute you. Nobody's going to kill you, not even try to kill you. We may persuade you to change your mind, but that's it. But if you really vent your frustration about Islam or turn it into a societal issue and go on television and say, well, I used to be a Muslim, but now I'm a Christian. And this is a much better and really sing the praises of, of Christianity, as it were, and, and criticize Islam. He said, that's wrong. And if you do that, you create fitna, you create civil strife and chaos in society. And that is what this rule of killing an apostate is meant for. But that still leaves the situation, of course, that someone like Salman Rushdie, who he mentions by name, by the way, should be killed. So that is not exactly an Ummah-centered point of view, where, where the, the particular person speaking, in this case, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, takes the interests of society first and privileges those over the Sharia. So what these people do is they take a position that really takes the texts into account on the one hand, but are unwilling to fully focus on the interests of the community and as such take a sort of half-hearted position in between, which I refer to as balanced. And the text that I just mentioned by Yusuf al-Qaradawi is, is one example, but there are many examples like this with regard to civil rights and freedoms where they are unwilling to abandon the literal reading of the text to such an extent that it provides more rights and more freedoms or significantly more rights and more freedoms freedoms for citizens of a Muslim country. Dr. Wagmakers, we're almost out of time for this uh, part. I'd like to ask you just one final question, which summarizes many of the key points that you just mentioned here. You mentioned the illiberalism of the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood. So much has been written on the question of the liberalism and illiberalism of the Muslim Brotherhood and political Islam more generally, especially since uh, the so-called Arab Spring events of uh, 2011. So what do you see as the main uh, contribution of your book to this existing broad literature of the Muslim Brotherhood and political Islam more generally through this focus on the Jordan Muslim Brotherhood? Right. Well, I think I see my contribution as really threefold. First of all, it's a highly detailed study of Islamist ideology going all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad. The first chapter really focuses on Islamic thought, political thinking in Sunni Islam. And it shows that the same type of issues that were used in the 10th century are still used now, but reinterpreting, constantly reinterpreted. And that the Muslim Brotherhood, not just the one in Jordan, but also in other countries, is part of that and builds on that so that there is a continuing tradition of Islamic thought that underpins whatever the Muslim Brotherhood is doing. That is not to say, of course, that that is the only source of influence. There are many other sources of influence as well, as I point out in the book. But it is, from the point of view of intellectual history, there is a, a clear thread running through that entire history. And I think that nobody has done that in as detailed a way as I have in that book. And that's actually the most important thing about the book. And, and the detailed analysis and the shifting, I use the concepts and the terminology by Michael Frieden, political uh, theorist, who's written extensively about ideology. And I really map out the different ideological fields and how different concepts are decontested within the Muslim Brotherhood's ideology in, in a way that makes sense, in a way that, that does not break with tradition, but, but shifts its emphasis, as it were. And I think that is the most important contribution of the book that I, that I make. 
The second contribution is obviously that it's a highly detailed study of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. Uh, you might expect that from a book entitled The Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. I think it, it brings up with the goods, so that's, uh, that's not a problem. And I, I think it simply is the most detailed publication on the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, in English, certainly. And thirdly, I think it contributes to the debates in political science about how strongly ideological movements and organizations can be integrated into a political system. This is a, a debate called the inclusion moderation thesis, which suggests that if you include groups, then they will moderate their ideological views. And there are some people who say that is actually happening. Inclusion leads to moderation. There are other people who say, no, it's actually repression that leads to moderation. And I argue in this, and in the case of Jordan, that generally speaking, inclusion has led to moderation, but to such an extent that when repression came along, mostly in the first two decades of the 21st, 21st century, so the last two decades, that in that context, even though the Muslim Brotherhood was severely repressed sometimes, the language and the discourse of the Muslim Brotherhood had already moderated to such an extent that in order for them to take a more radical position, they would have to move either outside of the Muslim Brotherhood altogether or take up one of the more radical positions within the Muslim Brotherhood. But because the Muslim Brotherhood had become so moderate throughout the 70-year history, the most radical position that you could take within the Muslim Brotherhood itself was to say, we're going to boycott the elections. Mm -hmm. So I argue that within a general tendency of inclusion leads to moderation, repression also led to moderation. So because repression, uh, in the case of the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, led to actually the Muslim Brotherhood doing making concessions and compromising. And that build on the work of Julian Schwedler, who's done excellent work on this with regard to the inclusion moderation thesis, and Shadi Hamid, who has also done so, but who both came to opposite conclusions. And I really show in my book that they are really both right. Okay, that, that's really fascinating. I think that leaves so much room for thought in terms of trying to understand both political Islam more broadly and uh, specifically the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, which is really the focus of your book. So uh, Dr. Bachmacher, thank you so much for your time and for these fascinating insights. And I strongly recommend whoever is uh, listening to this uh, podcast later on to uh, get a copy of Dr. Bachmacher's latest book, which uh, really sounds fascinating for all the above-mentioned reasons. And we'll be very happy to keep talking with you in these uh, podcasts also in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you.